We are seeing an acute mental health crisis these days in Australia and a rise in chronic diseases like diabetes and obesity. And my guest today says modern culture itself is causing both these crises. So we need to dismantle it. Dr. Gabor Mate has popularised many ideas that we used to think were radical about the impact that trauma and stress can have on our bodies and minds through his work on addiction and mental health and childhood development. He, you might know him from his book When the Body Says No, but he's written his new book with his son Daniel Mate. It's called The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. And you'll be pleased to hear there's lots in it about how we can change things for the better. Dr. Gabrielle Mate, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So what is it about our culture that you say is toxic? Well, if you studied animals um, in a zoo, you'd see them behaving in ways that are not at all natural or healthy for them. Their behavior would be normal for their environment, but it would not be healthy or natural. Now, our society has become, in that sense, a kind of zoo where human beings are living far away from the evolutionary dictated um, physiological and emotional needs. And that denial of human needs, which is endemic to our culture, is making us sick. So if you look at the epidemic of childhood mental health disorders here in North America, the rise in childhood suicides, the many kids being diagnosed with this, that, or the other and being medicated, the adult mental health crisis, the rise in chronic physical illnesses, we can either assume that these are all either misfortunes of fate or genetically determined pathologies, or there's something about the culture that's making us sick. And I'm saying that it's the latter. It's there's something about the way we live that doesn't meet human needs. It's considered normal, hence my title, The Myth of Normal, but it's neither natural nor healthy. So you're not saying it's it's just about our distance from nature, the way we not, are not living an agrarian lifestyle, for example, or, or in the forest anymore. It's something to do with the the cultural conditions of our life, not just the, the physical. Well, science knows this. Unfortunately, most physicians like myself were never trained to understand this, but science is not even controversial, that mind and body can't be separated. So our psychology is of, of a piece with our physiology. So whatever happens emotionally, psychologically, has a huge physiological impact, and vice versa. Even right now in this conversation between you and I, if I raise my voice in a hostile way, even tens of thousands of kilometers or miles away, your physiology would change because your physiology is affected by your emotions. Now, this begins already in the womb. So we know already that the most stressed, the most stressed pregnant women are, that has an impact on the physiology of the children's brain. And that predisposes them to learning and health problems later on in life. And, and this goes on all throughout lifetimes. So that the question is, under what conditions do we live our lives? Now, as human beings, we evolved... And your Aboriginal people in Australia, just as our Indigenous people here in Canada, could tell us this. We evolved not as isolated, hostile, um, competitive, selfish individuals, but we evolved as people that lived in small communities, collaborative, uh, communal, 
um, caring for each other. The children were with the parents the whole day. The children were not put down. They were not told to sleep it off, to cry themselves to sleep. They were not hit. Um, they were respected. And these conditions are less and less available in modern culture. As parents are more and more stressed economically, by social equality, inequality, by the stresses of multitasking, by the traumas that they carry, parents are less and less. It's not that parents love their kids less. They're just as devoted as parents ever were. But conditions of life make it less and less possible for them to meet their children's needs. And those unmet needs, let alone the traumas that happen, have a huge impact on the child's physiology and psychology for a lifetime. I guess, Dr. Gabor Mate, some might argue that there are things that we can't know about that early agrarian life. We can't know how much they hit their children, for example, to, to give one of the examples. Yeah, yeah, yes, we, yes, we can. Yeah. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. The people that say that just don't know the research. So are we talking about archaeology? Uh, well, first of all, there's a lot of archaeology. There's also a lot of anthropology. And has been for, you know, 100, 200 years. And furthermore, um, these have been studied and, and documented and, 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 and published. And so, so that, for example, when the um, North, when, say the Europeans first came to North America, they recorded that they were appalled by how the indigenous people raised their kids because the indigenous people didn't hit their kids. To the Christians, this was sparing the rod, spoiling the child. So, you know, and, and, and there have been people, even today, or even fairly recently, when people have lived among the few indigenous people still living in their natural environment, they see very different types of parenting. Like the whole idea of not picking up a kid when they're crying, they would never think of doing that. Never. I guess there's also the argument that a lot of women have fought really hard not to have the entire burden of child rearing placed on them, you know, uh, not to be uh, holding children for four years or so, as you recommend breastfeeding th that length. Uh, and the village hasn't stepped in, Dr. Gabor Mate, to share the load effectively so far. Are you arguing then that we need to look at some of those bigger systems of equality as well as the individual parenting modes? That's my whole point, that the toxicity of this culture is not the fault of individuals who are somehow um, negligent in how they look at their kids. There's way too much pressure on mothers these days. Mothering was never meant to be an individual isolated enterprise. It, as the old saying goes, it takes a village to raise a child. And mothers used to a parenting community where other mothers would come and, and help take care of the kids. Other adults would come and help take care of their kids. Mothers were supported. Look, there's a reason why 78% of autoimmune disease happens to women. Because when I've studied, and not just when I've studied, when other researchers have studied who gets autoimmune disease, it's people who take responsibility for other people's needs and, and, and suppress their own. It's people who took on the stresses of their environment. It's people who have to repress their healthy emotions, like healthy anger. It's people who are afraid of disappointing others. Now, in our culture, that burden falls on women. So, that, for example, and the more trauma there is, the worse that is. So here in Canada, and I'm pretty sure in Australia, although I haven't studied the statistics there, but here in Canada, uh, the indigenous population used to have no autoimmune disease at all, none. Now, today, an indigenous woman 
in Canada has six times the rate of rheumatoid arthritis than that of others. Why? Because they're the most stressed and traumatized and most burdened population, both by dint of being women and secondly, by being indigenous. So, you know, and the science is very clear on this. I mean, it's not controversial. It's just, unfortunately, none of this is taught to my physician colleagues and despite all the published research. We're speaking with Dr. Gabor Mate, who has been a physician for many decades now, and you might know of uh, his other books, including When the Body Says No. The latest one is called The Myth of Normal, uh, and the subtitle is Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. A text has come in, uh, Gabor, picking up on one of the points you made. Uh, What a Mm -hmm. load of rubbish, it says. This guy is spruiking that uh, it's less stressful in the olden days, uh, where you don't know where your next feet is going to come from these days it's just a lot more people so it seems there's a lot more instances of bad things if i can pick up on a point in that are you saying that things are really worse now than say in you know being a surf in pre-industrial times and that level of uncertainty and low mortality i'm not saying that no i'd rather be today than be a surf we're not comparing feudalism with uh, advanced capitalism we're comparing modern civilization with our evolutionary origins we evolved not as serfs. We evolved as um, creatures living in community in small groups, in close connection with nature, and in close connection with each other. And uh, can you tell me the statement again? I mean, this person is obviously forthright in their opinion. Thank you very much for calling all my lifetime of research rubbish, but I'll let that go. Just tell me what they said again, and I'd like to respond very directly. The main point I think they're making is uh, how could life oh, yeah, be more compared, stressful oh, yeah, now? more stressful in old days? Mm. Okay, total nonsense. This is typical nonsense uh, that people just repeat one after the other. Actually, if you look at stress amongst indigenous hunter-gatherer groups, it's much less than it is in modern society because of a single fa- Because first of all, they lived in harmony with the environment. They understood the nature. They were a part of nature. They feel, they saw themselves as a part of nature. They didn't feel alienated from it. Now, they also lived in communities supporting each other. Now, let me tell you a simple fact. Take multiple sclerosis. This is a condition that's an autoimmune condition. In the 1930s, the gender ratio of multiple sclerosis in Canada, I would guess in Australia, but again, I don't know Australian figures, was about one to one. Now it's three and a half women to every man. Well, why is that? Genes haven't changed in 80 years. The diet hasn't changed more for one gender than the other. Neither is the climate. What has changed? Women are under more stress because uh, they've always had to play the role of the um, emotional caregivers. They're still doing that. Now they also have to contribute economically, uh, go out into the job world, Number three, and, and number three, we're more isolated, so there's less support. And this is the rise, why the rising gender ratio. It clearly has to do with stress. And if you look at the scientific literature on multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis, you see the documented connection between childhood trauma, stress, and these diseases. So for somebody to argue that... You know, evolutionary origin, we had less stress than we do now, is just the opposite. That's not my opinion, that's the opinion of the research. So, one of us here hasn't looked at the research, either this person who wrote that note, 
or me. It's that simple. Another text has come in, Dr Gabor Mate. Absolutely agree with what you're saying. Motherhood should not be a one-woman show. The capitalist economy thrives on disease, doing nothing, uh, so nothing will change until our economy reflects our stated values. And Gabor, you're very upfront in the book, The Myth of Normal, about your own behaviour and how that was shaped by your childhood experiences, uh, trauma and stress. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about uh, what was going on for you and your wife during that unexpected third pregnancy that you had. Well, so um, the brief biography I can give you is I was born in January 1944 in Budapest, Hungary, to Jewish parents two months before the Nazis occupied Hungary. So I spent the first year of my life under Nazi occupation, my parents being separated, my dad being in forced labor, my mom not knowing if he's dead or alive, uh, my mother being terrorized, especially after the death of her parents in Auschwitz. And she was, you know, under threat herself. And then at 11 months, I was separated from my mother for six weeks, didn't see her. I was traumatized. I carry that trauma into my marriage. We all do. We don't mean to, but we do. And we usually marry somebody who's exactly at the same level of trauma that we're at. I don't mean that the trauma looks the same, but the same degree of wounding, because that's what trauma means, a wound. So I marry somebody who's as wounded as I am. So that means we carry our wounds into our marriage, and we don't realize even that we're wounded. We just think this is life. That means that when we have children, we pass that on to our kids, not because we mean to, not because anybody intends to, but because you can't help it because we're not aware of it and you can't help something that you're not aware of. Now, when I was 44 and my wife 40, uh, we unexpectedly have conceived a third child. And I was a workaholic doctor. Why was I a workaholic doctor? Because the message I got from the world when I was an infant is that I wasn't wanted. Well, if you're not wanted, one way to compensate for that is to make yourself very helpful, very important to people. And one way to do that is medicine. A lot of my fellow physicians suffer from the same drivenness. And that means I'm a workaholic. I have to keep proving my value to myself by being an important doctor. And that means I'm not available to my spouse as an emotional support. So she gets stressed. And as I mentioned, I think already, we know that stresses on the pregnant woman already affect the emotional and physiological brain development of the child. And this is what, this is what happened. And I'm upfront about it because um, I'm not ashamed of it, you know. I'm sorry that it happened that way and I've done what I can to make it up to my kids and to help them heal. But I didn't do it deliberately and I talk about it openly because I want other people to look at themselves honestly without shame without self-guilting, without self-blame, but honestly, so that they can heal their traumas so as not to pass it on to the next generation. Well, yes. I mean, I've, I wonder, do you worry about the impacts of that time on that child, given what you said about, you know, how parent, uh, paternal depression and and mental health issues can transmit down the generations? And, and are you worried about your own prospects for a long and healthy life, given the effects of the trauma that you've described? <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm 79, so I've had a reasonably long and healthy life already. Could be longer. Um, but but uh, I've had to work on my traumas. I really did. And it's, it's ongoing work. 
As to my children, I know I passed on my traumas onto them and that has an impact on them. For example, postpartum depression, even prepartum depression, but postpartum depression in the mother makes the child at more greater risk for ADHD, attention deficit disorder. There's a simple reason for that, both physiologically and psychologically. But again, the child's brain development is very much affected by the emotional environment. I don't make that up. That's what brain science shows. So yes, children who grow up with mothers who are depressed, and it's not the fault of the mother that she's depressed. She's just not getting the support that she needs, and she's probably getting some trauma. But that's going to have an impact on the child. All that can be healed. That's the good news. It can be healed in the child. It can be healed in the adult. It can be healed in anybody who retains consciousness at any age. But in order to heal, we have to understand what happened. And and we have to understand some of the principles of healing. The the parts of the book where you argue that children's physiology is hugely affected by what's going on with their parents might worry some parents, I think, Dr. Gabor Mate. Uh, are you arguing that children's uh, cancers, for example, can be traced back to the the parenting environment they've grown up in? Or are there is it impossible to pin down the, the true cause of cancers? Well, in my book, I talk extensively about the literature, not I don't make stuff up. I'm just reporting here, really, both my observations as a physician, but also largely the research literature. And my book is heavily annotated with the scientific studies at the back. And it's absolutely clear that emotional factors can make a significant contribution to the risk of malignancy in adults. Now, nowhere do I talk about children. And the reason I don't talk about children uh, as malignancy is twofold. One is that there's very little research on that. So I'm not going to make guesses and speculations. Parents who are having to look after a child with malignancy have a hard enough task without somebody coming along and saying it's your child's stresses that caused this. So I, I just don't go there. I don't discuss it. So it's not a question I'm, I care to engage with. It's not a question that there's a lot of material to study from. But when it comes to adults, autoimmune disease, mental health conditions, malignancy, there's a lot of research, a lot of literature. And for example, there's a British um, psychologist, a member of the British Academy, Richard Bentall, Dr. Bentall, who said that the link between childhood misfortune, adult mental health conditions is as strongly established in the scientific literature as the link between smoking and lung cancer. Unfortunately, the average physician never hears a lecture on that. The average physician doesn't get a single lecture on trauma in all the years of education. The average physician, whether in Australia, UK, or Canada, or the US, or anywhere, rarely gets a single lecture, if at all, on the unity of mind and body, which science has established. There's tens of thousands of research papers showing the pathways by which emotions affect our immune system, for example. None of that is taught to our physicians. Hmm. We're speaking, so that, there's a huge gap between what science tells us and what medical practice acknowledges. It's, it's a tragic gap. It, it just leaves us so short 
of healing possibilities. And there are many people interested in the healing possibilities that Dr Gabor Mate has in mind. We are speaking with him. He's a physician of long standing. His latest book is called The Myth of Normal. I'll read out some of these texts. We will leave some time before we finish speaking with Dr Mate to talk about the solutions and how we can change things for the better. But one says, I wake up every day thinking, what is this? Stress at every point. Why? Who's gaining from it? Follow the money. Thank you, Garbor. Another says, this is fantastic. I raised my kids like this, breastfed both until four years, as they too wanted. Uh, always would cuddle them when they cried. This was intrinsic to me and my beliefs. Ironically, I have an autoimmune disease, but I wouldn't change a thing. Thank you for the conversation, says Sonia. And uh, another talked about the difference between her mother's experience and hers. She says, I absolutely resonate with Dr. Mate is saying, my mother said to me recently, she feels that as a mother, I have faced so much more more pressure to excel at motherhood than she did when I was a baby and that I am more isolated. And I I think you you touched on that before, Dr. Marte, when you talked about the the structures of our culture and our society that need to be changed. I do want to pick up on one of the things you discuss in your book, which is the link between suppressing anger, healthy anger, and breast cancer. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your, your thoughts on that? Sure. This is not a modern idea, by the way. Um, in ancient times, a Roman physician in the second century pointed Galen. He pointed out the connection between a woman's emotional states and breast cancer. In 1870, there was a very famous British surgeon called James Paget, um, who is still well known in medical in the annals of medical history, who pointed out that a woman's moods have a lot to do with. The, the the onset of breast cancer and and the outcome of it. Recently, just within the last year, there was a new study that again showed, for example, that the more depressed a woman is, the lesser the lesser chance of survival of breast cancer is. In other words, the link between emotions and uh, and, and physiology. Now, when it comes to anger, um, healthy anger has a purpose. Our brains are wired for anger. By evolution, we have anger circuitry in our brain that we share with other mammals. Why? Because it helps to protect our boundaries. So healthy anger is a boundary defense. It says, no, you're in my space, get out. That's whether so physically or emotionally. That is a defense mechanism. The role of emotions in general is to allow in what is healthy and nurturing and welcome and loving and to keep out what is dangerous and, and unwelcome. Now, what is the role of the immune system? Guess what? The role of the immune system is to keep out what is dangerous and unhealthy, toxins and unhealthy bacteria and so on, and let in what is nurturing, um, nutrition, vitamins, healthy bacteria, and so on. The The emotional system and the immune system have exactly the same role. Why? Because they're the same system. I don't make this stuff up. I know it sounds fantastical to some people, but this is just how it is. There's a new science when I say new, 60, 70 years old, 60 or 70 years old, called psychoneuroimmunology, which studies the unity of the emotional system of our bodies and brains with the immune system, with the nervous system, and with the hormonal apparatus. It's not separated. It's all one system. So the immune system and the emotional system are part and parcel of the same system. Guess what? 
when you repress your anger, because as a because as a kid, you grew up in a family where you were not allowed to be angry, and in order to be acceptable to your parents, or to your peers, or to your society, you repressed the anger because that was your way of buying acceptance. Repressing anger also affects the immune system because it's the same system, and the immune system cannot turn against you. Now you've got autoimmune disease. Or you have an immune system that's disabled from recognizing malignancy, now you've got cancer. So the links are obvious, they've been documented physiologically, it's no secret. And I think that the recognition of these facts would make a big difference to how we treat people medically and, and to people's chance of healing. Not only I think that, this has also been documented. There also do seem to be quite a few studies and meta-analyses saying it's a pretty weak link uh, between psychosocial factors and breast cancer, uh, such as repressing anger and breast cancer. Yeah, that's because they don't know what they're talking about. No, and I we need more research. This Sorry to interrupt. The people that say those things are never trained in understanding psychology. Well, this is a 2000 study from Australia, from Royal North Shore Hospital, the University of Sydney, the the University of Adelaide. There's also one in 2000 from the College of Nursing at the University of Tennessee. And they basically say we need more research. Would you agree with that? No, I don't need more research. I've talked to dozens and hundreds of women with breast cancer who tell me what a difference it makes for them to be emotionally in touch with themselves and how they learned from their illness. I've talked to many people. Now, some fellow doctors say that's anecdotal, doesn't prove anything. Look, I'm telling you, these studies reflect the limitations of the people conducting the studies. Most people conducting studies don't understand the first thing about the mind-body unity. They're not trained in it. Their studies are gonna reflect their findings. For example, they'll define stress in a certain way. If you define stress in a certain way, then only those people that meet your definition of stress will show up in your study. But what if stress is something more subtle and deeper? Then they won't show up in your studies. So I'm telling you, there's lots of studies always in all kinds of directions. Mm. We don't need more research. What we need is the science and the research already done being put into practice. So for example, what I said about multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis, there's lots of studies, significant studies, showing the link between these conditions and the onset of these illnesses. But the average uh, sufferer of multiple sclerosis or lupus or autoimmune disease who goes to a physician never gets asked any traumas in your childhood. How do you feel about yourself as a human being? What's your relationship like with your spouse? How do you like your work? How do you feel about yourself as a human being? Mm. Nobody will ask them these questions. And yet, we know that people that explore those questions and get into a different relationship with themselves have a much better possibility of healing. We've got a few minutes left with you, Dr. Garbor Mate, and I really want to get to your thoughts on how we move forward here. You talked before about that uh, healthy model of living, small groups in connection with nature, a uh, more cooperative way of living. Can we go back to that? Are there ways we can recreate that in our modern life and economy? No, we can't go back to it. Nobody wants to go back to being hunter-gatherers, and we can't just destroy it. <laughs> you know, everything that human ingenuity and science and technology and creativity has built in the last, you know, millennia. It's not about that. But it's a matter of recognizing what we've lost. And can we combine our modern sensibilities and our modern science and our amazing human achievements with 
understanding human needs. Now, if we did, we would treat children very differently. It would also mean that, like, say, child brain development. Brain development happens from before birth to adulthood. I don't make that up. That's what the brain science shows. And the brain science also shows, and I'm quoting from an article from Harvard University, that the most important impact on a child's brain development is the emotional relationship with adults. That actually affects the physiology of the child's brain. Now, if we respected that, how would we handle pregnant women? So when I went to medical school and I was learning, and I delivered a lot of babies in my time, um, I was told to take the blood pressure and the weight and talk about the diet, this kind of stuff. Nobody told me to ask a woman how she feels emotional, what her relationship like is with her spouse, any stresses in your life, how do you feel about your work, what's it like to be you? Nobody taught me to ask those questions. And yet we know that the woman's emotional states have a significant impact on the child in the womb. We know that. We've known it for decades. Secondly, how do we birth babies? The more mechan- no. modern obstetrics has saved many lives of children and women, and it's not to be discounted. But we've overdone it. We've medicalized birth to the point that in many countries, the cesarean section rate is 40 and 50%, which means we've taken a natural process and made a pathological process out of it. That interferes with the bonding between mother and infant, which is an impact on the child's brain development. Thirdly, how well do we support the new mothers? Do we give them community support? Do we give them a village that they need? Do we give them the attention, the economic security, so they don't have to be stressed when they're interacting with their infants? Or fathers, for that matter. Mm. When children go to daycare, because the parents have to go to work, are the daycare workers trained? Are they trained in understanding children's emotional needs? Are we creating this village that we could create if we were just conscious? When kids go to school, are the schools places of rote learning where they have to learn skills and facts? Or given that their brains are still developing, and given that the most important influence on child brain development is the emotional relationship with nurturing adults, are the teachers trained to be the surrogate parents that they actually are? No, they're not. I talk to teachers all the time. They never hear this stuff in their training. So what I'm saying is, no, we can't and don't want to go back to days of yore, you know, mm, prehistory. Yeah. Well, we could, with some insight, recreate some of the conditions that support healthy child development. And we can do that through our social existence in general, mm. if we're conscious of it. Dr. Gabor Mate, there is uh, so much discussion of your views on our text line and a clearly a huge amount of interest in what you're saying. Thank you so much for joining us for a period of time here on Life Matters to go in, into your, some of your ideas in depth. I appreciate it. A pleasure. And if anybody wants to check out my work further, lots of my talks are available on YouTube or on Instagram and so on. So you're more than invited to follow my work if it speaks to you. And thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Gabor Mate's latest book is called The Myth of Normal. Strong views on both sides uh, about his arguments on the text line. Many people saying this just resonates so well with me. Others saying, look, uh, what about the role of Epstein-Barr virus in causing multiple sclerosis, for example? Surely there are other explanations. So I will leave you to make up your own mind on that. But the book was a very interesting read. 
ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.